Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Create a Life You Love. And on this episode of the podcast, I get to interview Piper DeLume. Now, Piper and I met in Costa Rica at a retreat center called Rhythmia. And when I first met her, I feel like I instantly connected with her. She's such an amazing person and has such an amazing way with words. In our conversation today, I'm so grateful because she was really able to open up and share her story. Now, ever since she was a little kid, her life was kind of predefined for her. You know, she grew up with a father being in Congress, her mother was a lawyer, and everything was kind of already predetermined. The way she should show up, the school she should go to, how she should act, and how she should kind of conduct herself. Now, over the years, and as she grew up, she took on so many things. She became uh, a therapist, she became an educator, she ended up writing 15 books, she produced movies, she produced music videos. She started her own talent agency. She was part of the United Nations Delegate Commission on the status of women traveling the world. She was speaking and saving people all around the world. She was doing work everywhere from Kenya to Congo, uh, working for uh, domestic violence and creating companies that were basically designed to help save the world. Now, throughout her years, she went through so much. And it wasn't until she was a little bit older where she realized she had to really go within to really understand what was going on with her and to really heal herself so in return she, she could better serve her community and the world around her. So I'm really excited to uh, share this episode with you guys. I think it's an amazing conversation with so many lessons. She has such an amazing way of speaking and sharing what she's been through. I was captivated the whole time and I hope you guys are as well. So with that being said, here's my conversation with the wonderful Piper Tulum. My life was predefined for me. And it was predefined for me because at the age of two was when my father first went into the body politic. Um, started off as Berkeley City Council. By the time I was four, he was a United States Congressman. So we left Berkeley, we were living in Washington, Washington DC. And his body politic was very liberal, very progressive. This was ending the Vietnam War, Cuban Missile Crisis, ERA, civil rights, ending apartheid, marijuana legality, gay rights. I mean, he was pushing and fighting. And he was one of the most extraordinary minds and extraordinary open hearts that you would ever meet. I mean, he and Cesar Chavez were partners and Angela Davis and all of it. This was a beautiful global connectivity to the world, to humanity, to democracy, um, to freedom. So I already had the seeds and the imprint before I even could comprehend or really uh, have the cognitive awareness of what it all meant that all human beings were in oneness, um, that the indigenous communities that we were fighting with and fighting for, that the Vietnamese people that we were fighting with and fighting for, that Holocaust survivors that we were fighting with and fighting for, those under Jim Crow, that this all mattered, that the environment mattered, that we were all in this oneness was already pushed in me. However, now we are congressional kids in Washington, DC, and my father stayed in Congress, you know, well, uh, uh, 30 years, um, and then became the mayor of Oakland, almost one year out of retirement. So, and my mother was an attorney for the ACLU. And so we had, our whole world was based around human rights and social justice. But at the same time, it was also guided by, um, by how the world projected itself upon political families. It was also defined by being African-American, by having also indigenous roots. It was also defined um, by being a woman. It was defined by how you represent yourself 
in a political culture. Washington DC was its own culture. Um, and it wasn't a culture that was similar to Berkeley. This wasn't barefoot and freedom to be. Having the body politic that my father embraced was a unique voice in the house uh, and um, uh, of representatives. So we're dealing now in an area that once, you know, Maryland, Virginia, that once was under all of these racist ideologies. Um, you know, even the neighborhood that we moved into in um, uh, Chevy Chase, uh, the Ottensteins who sold us the home, they were the first Jewish family ever to be in that community. They weren't wanted, they weren't desired, but it was, after a long while, it was allowed. We had to send my uncle, uh, Michael Abramowitz, who was Jewish, to buy the home for us because they didn't want us in, in that same home after the purchase, although my father was a U.S. Uh, congressman. So he had to purchase it as the face of us, you know, for our family so that we can move into our home. Yeah. So I didn't know self-love was defined by society. It was uh, defined by politics. Um, and it really disallowed me to have a sense of self. I was the congressman's daughter. I was the attorney's daughter. Um, I was I was defined by who they were. I lived in their shadow. I lived by their accolades. And I lived my life accordingly, which meant I wanted to have these types of grades, go to these types of schools, wear these types of clothes, have these types of friends, marry this type of person, drive this type of car, because we're fitting inside of a box um, where there were expectations. What that did is it disallowed me to authentically know who I was. I learned very early on how to stand on stages, wave my hand, have a false identity to put on a cosmetic of being to the point where I had absolutely no idea who I was at all. So of course I found myself going into, um, I became a therapist and an educator because I was really trying to identify my own uh, psychological um, um, fragility, um, my own depressions, my own um, escapism, um, my own um, um, self-hatred. And then at the same time, I also wanted to be loved and adored like my father was, because that was the pinnacle. And if I didn't reach that, then I felt as if I wasn't succeeding in life. I wrote 15 books. I produced all of these movies. I started a big talent agency. I became a United Nations delegate, Commission on the Status of Women, traveling the world, speaking and saving people all over the world, doing all of this work, moving to South Africa, moving to Kenya, moving to Kanyo, Ka uh, Congo, doing all of this work to save the world, working for domestic violence, producing five documentaries around domestic violence, you know, creating companies that were going to expand the heart and save society. And at the exact same time that I was doing all of this, I was going in and out of abusive, uh, abusive um, relationships, my children had been abducted for a long period of time. I was going through sexual trauma. Yes. Sorry. No, that was off. it. No, but I mean, your story is incredible. That is 100% for sure. And you gave us kind of like the high level um, perspective of like what you went through growing up. But can you share just a little bit more about like as a kid growing up, you know, into your teens, into your young adult, like, how are you feeling in those years? How are you able to kind of show up for yourself? Predefined for me. Sorry, I'm sorry. Predefined for you, right? So you're almost like, without even knowing, you had a plan to follow. You had a journey to follow. Absolutely. But what was it like for you actually going through all that? Like, were you a happy child? 
Were you confused? Were you rebellious? Like, what were you actually going well, in, in retrospect, um, there are many layers to that. I would say that there, I knew how to have moments of extreme joy, happiness, because we had a lot given to us, you know, big, huge parties, you know, travel, um, beautiful home and amazing friends. But I was very sad and despondent on the inside. And that was because I was being sexually abused by a babysitter starting at the age of four and it went on continuously. And um, I, I did not feel as if I was important enough to bring this to the attention of my family. Um, I knew it was wrong. Um, I, I was very well groomed because I was given treats, you know, um, before and after, whether it's the ice cream man coming or a candy bar or a stuffed animal. And the reason being is inside of our home and you are in a political environment where there's so many massive uh, necessities of change happening. And it's sitting on the heart and throne of your parents who are fighting with every part of their being to change the world. You're hearing about Nelson Mandela and apartheid. You're hearing about Mahatma Gandhi. You're hearing about all of these, the ERA movement, this has to happen. And you're, this is in, in enveloping your home. So all of these people and these world leaders and experiences are literally in your house. So what you hear is, wow, that's about saving 25 million people. That's about the annihilation of 25 million people. That's about genocide. That's racism. I'm certainly not going to climb the stairs after, you know, I feel my father stressed and he has to run off and do a 10 mile run or my mother is crying while playing the piano and, and under all of the stress and tell them that this is happening to me because this seems so little. It's so minute. How it expressed itself was I was wetting the bed. I was wetting the bed. Um, I was sleeping in my closet sometimes just out of fear. I was having night terrors. I was sleepwalking. Um, how it translated in junior high is, is ego. I could put on the designer clothes and be in my clique of friends, but I escaped through theater, being a part of, of theater and, and science and the arts and ballet. Um, and then on the weekends, smoking pot, you know, hanging out with my friends, drinking myself sick, you know, you know, finding whatever ways I could escape, never communicating what was going on internally. But internally, I had learned that I was unimportant. I had learned um, self-hatred. Um, I had learned that um, the world was not a safe place. So I had to figure out how to navigate that. At the same time, I wanted my dad. He was the closest person to me. I really needed him. And if I had had the ability to share all of this with him, I know that my father would have been right there to, to not just bear witness, but to save me from it, that I was important. But he wasn't home enough. He was Cuba, and then he's in Russia, then he's in South Africa, and then he's, you know, in, in Grenada, and he's back in California, our congressional district, we're in DC. So when he would come home, he's coming home exhausted after all of that travel and fighting and speeches and, you know, dealing with victims. And so all I wanted for those few moments when he was home was his time and attention. Just some time, and I wasn't going to add you know, to all of the stresses, to all of the tensions, I wanted to be a comfort to him. I wanted so in to- In a way, you, you were almost like conditioned 
right? To be a certain way without even realizing it, especially sure. when you're still doing all these things. Sure. It was home, it's like your condition just to step back. So we're a generation that didn't share. You know, I was born in 1965. <laughs> so I'm growing up, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I mean, I had friends that were being sexually abused by their parents. I had all kinds of stuff was going on. We didn't find out about this till we were in our 40s and met up as adults because this was not a generation. We didn't have internet and cell phones. This was not a generation that discussed these types of things. You know? Actually, yes. Sure. You didn't discuss that. Your parents didn't discuss their fights with you. That was not, that was when Judy Bloom and Dr. Seuss and any book that we could get our hands on, that was the best way to communicate and understand our feelings. So I fell into reading a lot in the arts, a lot in performance, wanting to become something else. I became an environmentalist because of the Lorax. You know, in this short little conversation, you've named so many things that you've become you became all these things. How did you maintain all that? Like, how did, how did you go from one thing to the other? How did you create these documentaries, these movies? How did you become like a psychotherapist? Like, how did you become all these things in, in such a short period of time? I believe that it was important to me to, one, I wanted my parents' adoration. Two, we were told very early on, you're walking through the world as an ethnic woman. You have to be 100% better than everyone else because if they're white, male, and mediocre, they're still going to get the position over you. We were taught that very, very young. So I had to double major and minor at UC Berkeley. You know, when I was going for my master's and doctorate, I had to be the top 10% of everything that I did because I knew that I already had a social disadvantage. That was one thing. But how I became all of these things is how we all keep a momentum in life going is there's always a recognition at, at, a, at each stage of your being, a recognition of, of um, seeking out healing and wholeness. We may not know how to define it, but we're always seeking out heal, uh, healing and wholeness. We, we do recognize even in the silent places I'm not happy. What would make me happier? Well, initially you think it's to help others. So you're going to take any position where you can help others. Well, I'll go into therapy. I'll go into teaching. But then what makes me happy? Oh, writing, theater, performing, making films. So on the side, I'm going to write books. I'm going to start a, a children's theater school. I'm going to become a filmmaker because artistically I was able to express and heal societal ails and also myself in private and in, in a, a more sacred place. But I continued the momentum because I think that initially, because initially I believe when you don't have an awareness or understanding that you are enough, especially if you come from a celebrity or celebrated parent, you feel as if you're never enough. So it's as if your life and your experiences and all that you do, it's like having a bag with holes in it. Every time you fill it, it empties and you think that's not enough. I have to do more. Then you fill it. That's not enough. I have to do more. So now I'm a writer and I'm a filmmaker and I'm a therapist and I've started schools and I've written curriculum, but now I want to be a public speaker. I want to, I want to, I need the world to, to know me. Oh, now I'm going to be a United Nations delegate. Now I'm going to start this business, this business, and this business. Now I'm going to work with celebrities. Now I'm going to do all of these exceptional things because 
in a way you're still trying desperately um, to become enough. And then, and then one of those traumas, because traumas are really just these beautiful life lessons to stop us, to awaken us. We really are to be in gratitude for everything that's ever happened in our lives that we once defined as a negative or a loss or a failure, because none of them are. What awakened me was my relationship with God, my relationship with nature, my relationship with animals, making love, falling in love, giving birth. All of these beautiful imprints of God traveling the world allowed me to see that I was the mirror as well as the face in it. Once I had this recognition that all that I had gone through expanded my compassion. I couldn't judge others because what everyone was going through, I had probably tasted a piece of, and I could say, wow, that's also me. So I learned, I learned how not to judge. And once I started not judging others, then I was no longer judging self. That became an impossibility. And then I started asking myself, who are you? Who are you really? That question popped up for me when my father died. My father died, I went, oh my God, who am I now? When I went through my divorce, I went, who am I now? When my children grew up and went off to universities and grad schools and married, oh my gosh, I'm not somebody's mom, I'm not somebody's wife, and I'm no longer his daughter, although I am all of those things. So in the solitude of being, in the solitude of ev the evolution of my soul and my life experience, I came to a halt. COVID was probably the most important halt that I ever came to. So, so that's what I wanted to ask you. So there was nothing specific that happened in your life that gave you an opportunity for growth. It was more of an accumulation of everything that you were doing and all the experiences that were happening in your life, like your father passing or giving birth to a child or your kids going off to school. It was more like an accumulation of things over years. You okay. finally realized you had to look more internal to really um, kind of help yourself heal. Yes, but I think the thing that was carrying me, always ascending me up the ladder, is I never didn't have a faith in God. Faith was always prayer, meditation, was always a wind of get up, always a wind of it's okay to cry, I'm catching your tears, always a wind of you'll get through this physical illness. Even when I was in in states of being suicidal depression, when I was really in dark, dark places, um, you know, I, I recognized that there was a, a still voice within that was always calling me forward, take another step, take another step. And when I realized that my depression was about holding on to all of these things from the past that I'd never divulged, that I'd never discussed, things that no longer existed, but were really the building blocks for who I had become. And then I was looking forward to now what, now what? That's where my anxiety came in, of course, because now we're dealing in the future. What really had to happen was that stillness of staying present. And that stillness of staying present was forced. God forced it many times before I recognized it. Forced it in, in, in major health issues where I had to be in the hospital for four months. Forced it after I was sexually assaulted. Um, because I had to be in the hospital. And then I was so depressed, I had to go into a mental institution for three, four weeks. So it was like God found a way to um, always put me in a quiet place where I had nothing but my thoughts to contend with. 
Mm-hmm. Was I able to do that with all of the breath and width that I do it now? No, but it became my awareness because you're in, you're still. It's like God had to keep saying to me, be still and know, be still. I didn't have stillness. I had, I have to succeed. I got to make a film. I got to start a company. I got to keep going. I got to build a house. I got to do, got to make money. I got to, and it was like, if I, all of the going was to keep me from thinking about what happened in the basement as a child. Right. But I think also based on what you're saying, it was also to live up to a certain standard. Totally. You were, I was predetermined when you were so, so young. So young, but on my father's deathbed is when my father, he lay his hand and passed the blessing onto me, onto my forehead. And uh, it was one of the most profound moments of my life because he lay his hand on me. I wasn't the firstborn and I'm not the boy. That would be the expectation. That's the, that's the, the spiritual expectation that my father's going to pass the blessing on to my brother. He passed it on to me. And I remember, um, bowing down to him. He called me over on the bed. He lay his hand on my forehead. He was shaking, shaking, shaking. And he said, my baby girl, um, I am passing to you my blessing. I'm passing my anointing, my governmental anointing. I am passing the anointing onto you. Run, run. There's so much work to do. Run and heal the world, but do it in your way. When he said, but do it in your way, that was the breaking of the chain for me where I didn't have to follow, you know, his footpaths. I didn't have to follow my mother. It didn't have to be politics and the law. It didn't have to be um, education. I didn't have to follow society. But when he said, do it your way, what awakened in me was that I didn't know who I was to know what my way was because I had been following every other path of someone else's road already paved. Right, so now it's time for you to follow your own path he put the baton in my hand and I went, what do I do now? So what, yeah, so, and that's a great question because you talked about even depression being in a, such a dark place. And every time it was like, in your mind, it was like God putting you in that place just to take a pause to reflect on yourself and where you're at. So how, how did you then come out of all of that? And, and when uh, your, your father passed on that baton, it's like, what I really want to understand is like, when did you start actually doing the work on your internal self? And what did you do? And what modalities did you take on to really help yourself heal so you could then go on this path that was like... Designed? It started with the grief. With the grief. Uh, it started with the grief because the grief became a purging that I had never allowed. I purged in such tears and such scream and such release. It was like, it was like a death and a rebirth consistently in the grieving of my father in the letting go and yet the holding on i was able to touch upon emotions that i had forgotten that i had but i kept telling myself that it wasn't me that needed work it was the the abusive relationship my husband i thought it's my husband i'm grieving but i'm thinking but my husband needs work like that's what i thought about the world i'm going to help that person needs help, and I'm going to do right. it. You're going, everybody else, do it. For you. everybody else but me. Mm-hmm. So now I'm in this grieving, and I'm dealing in a marriage where, at this point, I would think my husband was on his 40th affair because he had a sex addiction. Um, it, he had, it was horrific throughout my entire marriage. Um, and I was never felt, I didn't love myself enough to leave. But I also had a God complex as a therapist, and I thought, and a healer, no, I'm not supposed to leave. 
I'm supposed to stay and love him through this and pray him through this and evolve him through this. And that will be my big lesson on how much he loves me is when he overcomes this. Well, that didn't happen. But what happened was I was at the Oscars um, and I went to the Oscar suites. Um, and at the Oscar suites, there was a sign that said Rhythmia. And I didn't know what that was. And I am, I'm going over, I'm getting all of the free stuff that you want to get, you know, when you're still wearing your mask, like the thousand dollar eye cream and the fancy glasses and all of the stuff I'm putting in the bag. And um, I walk over and there's a gentleman behind the table. His name was Goli. And, um, and I said, wow, what is this? And he handed me a book, um, Shit the Moon Says. <laughs> it was Jerry Powell's book. Okay. And and I thought to myself, okay, what am I going to do with this book? And he goes, oh, it's just a great book to read. And then maybe you can consider coming to Rhythmia. And then I went, Rhythmia? Why did I hear this? I heard this. Someone spoke about this in Hollywood. And then I went, oh. And then I looked at him and I said, I don't want a book. I need to go. This is a total stranger. And I started crying. Like it all came up and I'm at the Oscar suites across the table. There was a spiritual energy that moved in. It was as if God said, I have been moving the domino pieces around. And I'm, and then I am looking at this man and I, and he was like, are you okay? And he walked around the table and he held my hands and I looked in his eyes and I said, I'm not okay. I said, I don't have time to read a book. I said, I am in an abusive marital situation and I need my husband well. I have had my children were abducted for eight years. They're now, you know, uh, you know, young adults, 19, 20, 21, but they're dealing with their own trauma. And I am feeling like I should have been super, superman and located them. But instead I had all of these nervous breakdowns, kept getting physically ill, kept going in and out of hospitals because I didn't have that strength as a, you know, as some of these mothers that, you know, they put up billboards and they have campaigns. I crumbled because my children were three and five when they disappeared on their preschool uh, playground. So I was shattered beyond belief and yet still trying to work to fill the void, fill the void, fill the void. And it was all coming up for me in, in this major way, holding this man's hands and I said, I am, I have been grieving since a child. What happened to me in the basement is happening to my children, has had been happening to my children, and I couldn't save them as I couldn't save myself. And now I've stepped into another relationship of sexual trauma, and it's a marriage, and I am not going to make it. I don't have time to read this book. I have no idea why I said that. Why did he reach inside of his shirt and pull out two free tickets? seven days free to go to Rhythmia, private homes, the whole thing, $14,000 gift. And this was three, four years ago. And, and he said, I'm not supposed to be giving these out. I only have like seven of them. And they're supposed to go to people like Rihanna. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, this is for Julia Roberts because they really wanted all, they wanted somebody that was not a film producer like me, you know, they wanted like a star so that they could bring people in. And yeah. he said, but God is telling me that you have to go. I set that thing up. Now in my head, I went, we're going to heal my husband. We are going there. We're to still heal his, heal his sexual addiction and whatever I get out of it, I'll get out of it. And that was the beginning. So you went with your husband that time? 
I brought him, I brought him with me to, to Rhythmia, mm -hmm. my ex-husband now. And, um, um, and I met Taito Anito. So it was stepping into the plant medicine, stepping into the earth mother, burying my feet again, this return to who I truly was. And I was reminded, wow, before the body politic, my, my parents were these hippies in Berkeley before we were suited up in Prada and Armani. And it was as if I knew that lineage. I knew my indigenous, my indigenous lineage. I knew my African lineage. My children were raised Jewish. My husband, you know, spent half of his life growing up on it on Kibbutzim. And so um, all of that, it was as if the medicine brought me back to the origin of what my soul was called to the earth to do by bringing me back into a childhood that I had forgotten that Washington, D.C. had erased in my having now to be in this perfect box of expression and experience as a congressional kid. It was as if um, I was sort of restored to this origin place before I had a self-definition of not being worthy, not being the medicine. She brought me to the most beautiful place. I had four heart surgeries. I was actually awakened to mother Aya as an ancient grandmother tree. She was sitting next to me. I could see her as clearly as I can see you. She was, thousand year old woman who looked like a tree with this long braid, a huge feather. And she, her arms lifted up as eagle feathers and she stuck them into my heart and she started working. And I remember just staring in her face and going through this massive heart surgery for hours. Every time the feathers would pierce a new experience that I had once uh, called a trauma, like my children being gone, you know, sickness, you know, sexual trauma, my dad being away, then passing all of these things were suddenly awakened as a beautiful gift from God, as this had, and, and it was funny because every time it pierced, a gratitude would come forth. Like, and, and I would say, thank you that I was sexually assaulted as a child because had I not been sexually assaulted, I wouldn't have rescued tens of thousands of children from trafficking and abuse world. Thank you that, you know, I went through that. My, I mean, it was like unbelievable. And it was going on and on and on and suddenly, Thank you that my children were taken, that they were ripped from my arms because now I have a new compassion for the children being ripped from their parents' arms at the borders, you know, in Texas and in California. I understand that loss, so now I can fight for it. Thank you for the illness and the disease that almost took my life because now I have the compassion to work for better health care, you know, to, to understand when people are in pain and suffering. And it was on and on and on. And at that point, point. You know, I had pushed through and I went, wow, I am hugely compassionate. I'm filled with love. Love is the only thing. The greatest epidemic in this world is a lack of love and human compassion. And we can't legislate that. We can't, we, we can change laws. We can change rules. We can get more degrees, but you cannot legislate or educate human compassion, self-love, self-awareness, you know, consciousness, oneness. You do not have the capacity outside of love of God and self to understand that every point of your journey, every step you took, every breath, every tear was a perfect gift in order to expand you and evolve you where we are an evolutionary species. And the only way to evolve is through change, through death and rebirth and death and rebirth. And it's beautiful because I'm still here and I'm expanded and I am um, um, awake 
and I'm in gratitude. And then my whole story changed and my whole story became this incredible gift. Of course, I could write all of these books because I've had all of these experiences. I could write about apartheid and children. I mean, the first children's book I ever wrote, Viking Press, Payton Putnam published it and it became Disney's number one grossing television film of all time about my father and I, The Color of Friendship. Had I not written that, my children had was, were already gone. I was in this. Where did your children go exactly? You, get, you mentioned it a few times. Well, we'll talk. We'll talk about that not on this podcast, but I would love to talk because I think I that's just bring it up. So I imagine it's yeah, a, a much longer story. But I mean, um, but mm-hmm. let me chime in here because, like, again, your story is incredible, and it seems like it all kind of. But I found my kids eight years later, so I don't like okay. that they're not. Right, no, I'm aware of that. But thank you for clarifying that. And it's like you went on this journey and, and, and in different ways. I, I can relate to the synchronicity of our lives and those challenging parts of our lives that were all kind of designed to take us to where we are now. And it seems like to when the, like when you started really doing that work on yourself for you, it was when you ended up getting those tickets to Rhythmia, which is a life advancement center where you got to work with plant medicine, in this case, ayahuasca. Was there anything like before we move on from that point, but was there anything prior to that that you were doing to do any other type of work on yourself? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I was very heavy in in my faith. I was also very big. That was a big one. That was a huge part. I was big as a therapist, so I'm also in therapy. Um, I was doing a lot of meditation. I was doing a lot of uh, indigenous drumming. I was doing sweat lodges. I was finding my way in other ways. You were already setting yourself up. Absolutely. I was building massive gardens. I moved, I left Beverly Hills and moved 7,000 feet on top of the mountain for five years in Idlewild. Um, and, um, oh, actually that was after, no? Oh, no, no, that was five years before the medicine. Um, I moved 7,000 feet on top of the mountain in a community that only had 467 people year round. Idlewild um, in California, mountains of California above Palm Springs. Very isolated, very stunning. And I would go into fasting for 30, 40 days just to hear from God. Um, um, uh, and you I was already trying to, I'm sorry, you were already trying to dial in that connection absolutely. with God to receive messages, to heal yourself. Absolutely. Is coming back to that. And I know it's going to be different for everybody going on these journeys, but I just want to touch on the importance of actually doing that inner work, whether it's through meditation, breath work, plant medicine, whatever. Journaling, all of these things. I was doing all of these things. Not really, they were not realizing they were all a step. You know, I mean, every single thing I was doing, helping others, building, you know, writing books. Um, I mean, I was traveling the world, rescuing women and children from human trafficking and domestic violence. I was in Belarus uncovering a case of 10,000, the homosexual pedophilia of 10,000 orphan boys. I covered the bombing of the Kenyan embassy. You know, um, I did a film for, on the, for the medicinal and legal of, of handling that. We built 40,000 homes post-apartheid in South Africa for the Zulu, Kosa, Sutu, Northern Sutu people, all prior. So I was eating. Because... I'm sorry, Dan. I know I cut you off, but no, it's hard to get in there. It's hard to get like in there. You have such a beautiful way with words, but like when I'm hearing all that, it's like it's like the whole analogy of doing versus being. You were doing, doing, doing so much, but almost getting forgetting about the, the essence of just being and then being for yourself internally. 
And then I feel like when you got to that point, you met that man who gave you the tickets. It was like the stepping stone that you really needed. You thought it was for your husband, but it was really, it really wasn't. It was for you. It was all for you. The greatest awareness of all of that is that the doing was the being. That's what I I had to come to recognize. Recognition that I am one and one and, and all, and we are all one. Once I was awakened to the truth of collective conscious, of oneness with all things, of kinetic energy and quantum light particles, and, you know, um, the light of the world being the invisible light that holds all things together, that everything was my family, everything was a part of me. Then I realized that every time I was helping another, I was helping myself. The beautiful thing was myself is not distinguished from another is what the medicine brought to me, that I am the mirror and the face in the mirror, that I am the cold water and the jar that pours it, that I am the music and the dance, that we are in oneness. Once I was awakened to that, I realized that I was no, that I wasn't being a doer. I was being a beer because those children were me. Those women were me. Those men were me. Those gardens were me. But God had to be to the truth. Once you get out of your head and believe that you're a separate entity, that's the only way. That's where the lies and the falsehood, that's the playground of all of that deception. Is when you believe that you are a separate entity, that this thing happened to me. And then I had to realize none of that happened to me. It wasn't just, it didn't happen to me and my children. It happened to the entire universe because there is a vibration of frequency. Every time a child is taken or abducted, it's my child. Every time someone dies on a, on, a, on a firing line or in a prison or through racial genocide, I die. My ancestors die. Every time there's a birth, I am reborn. The beauty, the reality of where the medicine brought me was through the heart surgery and through the gratitude was that every single thing that's ever happened in the world, past, present, and future, thank you, Einstein law of relativity, is happening to, through, and for me. And even when I leave this physical body, that this is just an incarnation for this schoolhouse of experience, expression, and expansion. This is not who I am. This is a journey my soul chose. And who I am has always been and will always be. So I was always helping self. I was always incredible. That's like such a that's like, like such a twist in reflection how uh, you went from like feeling one way to identifying the fact that no, it, it was all for you. It was all you being in that, in, in those, in those moments, in those situations. And in return, you, you were not just helping other people. You were actually helping yourself. Yeah. And the, yes, you're helping self. And who are those other people? Those other people are you, that's your family, that's your blood. There is no separation. There is no us in them. Every time I fed a homeless person, I was feeding self and seeing the vibration of the universe by giving the only gift that we can give to change the world, which is love. This is what Babel was about. There's a million languages. Everyone's trying to become God, to find God, climb this ladder to be God. It crumbles to the ground with a million languages, a million faces of of earth, you know, and, and God said, I will mix up those languages because there's one language to unify and it's love. But think about 
think about who we truly are as a family. You know, when it says God blew his spirit into man from the earth, that's black earth, brown earth, red earth, white earth, yellow earth, beige earth, all of the earth. So I put my shoes and I put my feet on the earth and I, I went around the world and I would stand on the earth recognizing a thousand million bloodsheds right beneath my feet of animals and the winged ones and the two-legged ones and the four-legged ones and human beings and creepy crawlers and, and flowers and plants. I'm on the earth where there's always been a rebirth, a, di- a dying and a resurrection. This tree that I'm hugging right now, a billion things have died beneath it to make this soil rich. And one day I will be that too. One day we will all go back to this earth. So we are all in one. Every piece of fruit we eat is coming from an earth that holds the blood and the tissue and the memory of all of humanity that came before us, you know? And so I was like, oh my gosh, there is no separation. You know, you can plant a massive garden and I don't know if, if, if this was an indigenous burial ground or if a whole family perished here, or we don't know if a whole animal kingdom perished there, but we can pick that beautiful piece of fruit and eat of it, knowing that the, the decomposition of that flesh and the worms and all of that mitigated and made that soil rich, made this tree this way and the flowers, I'm sitting underneath this majesty of all life and death and oneness of everything all at the same time. And one day it will be me. So I'm that tree. I'm right. that. We are one of everything. We are everything and everything is us. And it's such a way to like almost come full circle too from this like incredible childhood that you've lived through and all these experiences. And then you go through Rhythmia, you have the surgery, and, and you and you realize that these were not all things that happened to you. It's things that you were like lessons that you were they happened for me. Happened for you. And then they happened as me. So what happens next, right? So you go to Rhythmia, you go through this experience. I mean, yes. what happens over the next? I, I'd say that was 2020. Well, all of that awakening changed everything for me. Yeah, so talk about that a little bit. Everything for me. Um, I was just awakened to everything as oneness. Um, I was called back to a lot of my culture, to indigenous culture, back to the plant medicines of of of, of the um, United States and other, back to fungi. I started a plant medicine company, plant medicine retreats, started a new clothing line. I just continued to grow because I realized Wow, why do you have so many businesses? Why are you have so many books, films? What are you doing with this? And I thought, wow, I want to amass. I what I want, what I want to amass is experience. And I want to be able to have many different avenues by which I can give back to self. So I wrote like I wrote a child's book called A Paintbrush Named Pierre. And I wrote it and said, this whole book and everything that's sold in this book is gonna go to uh to um uh children with cancer, you know, to St. Jude's. So I just flew myself with a friend to Tennessee, walked into St. Jude's and said, this is the book. It's for sale all over Amazon that I wrote just for these kids. We're here with a guitar. We'd love to be able to read it to the children. 100% of proceeds. This is <laughs> That ended up sort of being this part of my clothing line back to missing and exploited indigenous women. This part of my, my clothing line and, and housewares goes back to proliferating the bees and planting more trees. This goes back to the home. So I was like, oh, keep creating because 
you can leave a legacy of giving sure. around the world. And then, sure. and then um, I start, and then I produced um, a, 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 a project for John Legend called Love One Another, John Legend and Tata Prince's nephew. So now I'm producing this massive thing. And I was also producing the new We Are the World um, that they did the second thing of We Are the World. But I was producing the John Legend uh, Love One Another. And then I thought I want to do a love event. I want to do a love event all over. So now I'm in contact with Chris Martin's people. And I'm going to do this huge event for, with John Legend, Chris Martin. And I was, I was trying to get to Ed Sheeran, all of this. I was like, I'm going to throw the biggest love festival music, you know, embrace in California sure. and then sure. COVID hit, COVID hit. Oh, no way. This is not pre-COVID. Yeah. Okay. yeah, because love one another was supposed to be about recognition of gun violence. And we were trying to bring this awareness. So I called every celebrity I've ever known in life. I had everyone there from Byron Allen. I had the, I had c c congressional leaders, superstars, famous musicians. I did it all, you know, uh, and, and, John just showed up, you know, John and, and they showed up and I did this entire event and, um, for gun violence and before we could release it. And it's one of the most beautiful songs and most beautiful, um, videos because it was all of the, the young people representing those that were killed from Sandy Hook all the way through the high schools. Then COVID hit and we had to translate it over. Now I'm recognizing when my father has passed away that had taken my breath away, right? I had lost my ability to deeply inhale when I was in that basement as a child. I stopped breathing altogether when my children were taken. Um, my breath was re restored, life is restored. My breath, breath again was taken away when my father died. And now we are in a pandemic that is stopping the breath and killing people all over the world right. and at the same time watching a black man on the street die again as if it's 1960 saying i can't breathe and i started recognizing i have to get back to breath god is guiding us to breath because our breath is being baited it's being stolen it's being stolen on the streets of america stolen around the world in a pandemic stolen when we're in trauma stolen when we're in shock and yet god is the one who gave us the breath of life, go back to the breath of life, go back to love, back to frequency, but go back in stillness because in isolation where God is taking us is the only way that the earth can heal itself. This is about restoring our oneness, get everyone off the rivers, everyone off the mountains, get everyone out of the sky flying, get everyone stop it so that we can proliferate our species of flora and fauna and go back to self so that fathers could take walks with their daughters again, that their life isn't about being at the, at the office, so that women could take off the cosmetics and the high heels that destroy their bodies and you're the only way that they can present themselves to feel beautiful, so that families could dine again, so that the streets could have silence and peace again. You know, all of this, and I, I, I recognized it as a gift. I was like, this is a blessing and a curse like everything else that happens in our lives. We have to be grateful for every moment that we're in this and know that the loss of life, you know, is, as my dad said, and, and, you know, when I was begging him not to go, I, daddy, please don't leave me. And his response was, you know, just like Ram Dass said about his guru, leave you, where could I go? If you truly understand the truth of being an eternal spirit that has been here forever and will be here forever, that this is just an incarnation in a temporal vessel here to learn in this schoolhouse, this university called now, then you have that same recognition when people were, were losing, um, were leaving their physical form 
during COVID that their spirits and souls were still here, that, that they chose this experience and expression to expand someone, expand another, expand science. Everyone, every soul makes a choice. I'm gonna come for this mission, fulfill that purpose. We don't understand that, we can't comprehend that purpose, but we can stop in silence and try to bear witness to a, uh, at least a little point of possibility of what that purpose could be. Because we know that we have also walked through purpose in our darkest times. And I know that my father's with me. I feel him all the time. I hear his voice. You know, I feel his presence. I know his essence. But you can only do that in stillness. So if in stillness, if it says, be still and know that I am God. When the world came into stillness, I went into stillness. And that's when I said during the COVID, I'm going to know God. I want to know God in and through me, as me, with me, and everything in it. So I expanded my company, started doing private retreats because it was safe and allowing people to have the same experience of journey um, with the Earth Mother. I really thought it's time for us to decriminalize what the Earth Mother has birthed. Medicine became this gift of the mother that I recognized was stolen because this is the greatest abused woman on the planet. So I said, open your legs wide, Mother Earth, birth, birth these mushrooms, birth these roots, birth these, you have the wisdom between your thighs. But if women are being trafficked, abused, belittled, if your daughters are being bad on the earth, then of course you are going to be the most abused of all women, the earth mother. It is my duty and purpose as part of your extension, part of your breath, part of your heartbeat in this incarnation to recognize the glory of the gifting that comes from between your thighs and through your earth. So this is no longer going to be defined as a drug because that's how man defined this. And man defined the earth medicines as a drug during colonization. This was a way to diminish and destroy the indigenous people, their truth, their wisdom, their gifting to the earth. How do you explain wiping out millions of people if you, you have to also wipe out their beliefs, their culture, their medicine? So I realized, oh, it's time to go back to the truth of who we all were before we were colonized, back to who God wanted us to be. And in the stillness and the silence, we have the ability to do that. doesn't matter what the systems are doing. You have to do it from within. So right. I the intention behind all of this, isn't it? All it's all from the place of love. And just healing. And it sounds like when, you're, when you came through your businesses, everything that you're creating now is with that intention. Is that fair? Absolutely. Well, God just kept saying to me, everything is love. Everything, everything is love. There so is you, nothing that isn't love. And so I named my company Is Love. Is love. So, yeah, so talk about that a little bit. Because like, so after COVID, when COVID kind of phased out, um, from what I understand too, you, you went back to the plant medicine, right? And you went on. Absolutely. You, you went on a few a uh, few different ceremonies and stuff like that. So where are you at now, like post? I mean, you can talk a little bit about those ceremonies, but sure. I'm curious. Well, well it, it really, the ceremonies this time, the way I, I look at life and experience now is that every single step of my existence is ceremony. God and the medicine and the earth and my inner voice and wisdom and ancestors and angels are speaking at every step and every breath of every moment. So that just so happened to be another moment of experience that I listened. I got to the point where it was like, you have to start listening and understanding when your steps are ordered by God to take the step. So when I would go back to my 
physical human places of grief and longing and remembrance. Um, I, it was, I heard God say, let's take another step. We're not going back to the medicine. We're going forward to another level of the medicine. And I couldn't be my own practitioner. I mean, I was acting as practitioner and healer for those coming into my retreat space. So I needed to go to the higher uh, source for me, which were the, the Titus and the shaman of Central America. So when I went back, I understood now the medicine is awakening me not to heart surgery, not just awakening me to heaven where I went for four or five hours to be with my dad and went, wow, this is it's real. But now I realized that the medicine was also going into the deeper places that were still shadowed where I still needed to heal, where I still didn't have self-love, where I still needed to bear witness to what is my worth, my value, who am I? What is my self-definition in this moment, in this time, really? And what am I holding on to that I need to release? What I learned in this journey was that I have no control. What, you know, I had no control over my body. I had no control over anything that's ever happened in my life which is also, and I'm not saying that I, that um, that's not to say that you don't have free will, but you don't have control. Like I can hop in my car and say, I'm going to make this film that I just got money to make and get hit by a car, you know, have a heart attack. You know, anything can happen because you, you're not in control. All you're in control in uh, is, is, uh, is receiving love and giving love. That's all you can control. The reality is you can't control whether you're going to have an aneurysm right now while we're doing the show. You can't control whether your heart's going to give out, whether something's going to happen. You cannot control it. You have you can't control whether a nuclear bomb's going to hit. You cannot control what's going to happen because you're not in control. I needed to hear that because I have been a person that has always tried to control all aspects of my life because that keeps me safe. If I can control my environment, if I can control what I'm eating, if I can control where I'm working, then because I lost control as a child, you don't have any control over your body as a child. If you're being assaulted, you're a kid. You don't have control over when your parents leave or come and go for work because that's not your decision. I don't have a control over whether my children are safe because life can happen. I didn't have control over my physical body, whether I'm going to go in and out of a hospital, find tumors, get sick because it happened. I didn't have control over my own mind when I had a breakdown. Yeah, but is it not things that you can do, not maybe to control, but to set yourself up in a way that like certain things don't happen, right? Like if you talk about your health, for example, you know. Absolutely. I mean, we can be preventative all day long. Right. But of course, you if you love self, you want to take care of your body temple, your mind, your spirit, your family, your soul. But the greatest thing that you can do in life is to stay at peace without the anxiety of what's to come and what are the what could happen or couldn't happen is trust trust yourself trust your journey trust god trust your heart and love what happens and let go of things that no longer serve you things in your mind and your experiences these were here to teach you you don't need to take algebra 2 15 times take the class and get on with it this no. is same as going through a trauma or experience or this was said to me or this is how I feel. Get the lesson, let it go. Because once you do that, you can receive better. The greatest reason that I went to Rhythmia is the reason that I didn't even know. I'm suddenly there, heart open, letting things go. And I'm being connected to people that I've traveled with in past lifetimes that I'm now in this awareness and I'm going, whoa, this is wild. I'm crying for someone and, and feeling that they're my child. And then feeling as if I have 
been in there. This happened with two different people at Rhythmia. And the beautiful thing about that is that we both all, both relationships felt as if our souls were saying, oh my God, I found you. There's almost a recognition that somewhere in another lifetime, when we were going through whatever experience or expressions the soul chose to go through in that incarnation, we said to each other, I will find you again. Well, we found each other again. So now I understood why my steps were ordered back to Central America. In that finding, I ended up bringing my company, all of my life experiences, right? My books, my film, my life, my, my theater, my therapy, and my company, and joining it, intertwining it with with someone that I met there that I, we both know that we've known each other at least two lifetimes. Accidentally, he called me mom while we were a number of times while we were at Rhythmia. And he's like, you feel like my mom found out that we had very similar stories, found out that his sister experienced what I experienced and what my daughters experienced. Yes. Our stories were going like this. And the beautiful thing is we all, we, but we both were still clinging to a little bit of the roots of those stories. We severed them. We were in freedom, came into freedom together without awareness, for lack of a better word, or baptized ourselves inside raging waterfall rivers, you know, in Costa Rica, bonded, fried, like fell in love with each other's soul. I felt like I birthed him. And then I felt like he was my dearest, dearest brother, like my closest sibling, like we had been twins, like this kind of a bond. And like, I have known you all the days of your life and I'm gonna care for you all the days of your life in a way that I only significantly was caring for my own flesh. But that's an awareness that are everyone's family. So that's also what happened. And I listened, stop this one work that I'm doing my own personal company where I could be bringing in all my own money, doing it my way, be doing the same. It was like, that's not what this is for. Right. And then other people, we were like, oh, Roxy, oh, Gio, oh, you. <laughs> Jeremy, suddenly it was like, oh, this is why we're here. Oh I, I really believe that this, that this last journey there were really souls that chose each other in the last lifetime to say, we're going to find, let's all find each other because there's work to do. There was definitely um, some connection and synchronicity going on beyond the ceremonies um, that I'm still taking it all in and was, a, you know, a little eye-opening for myself as someone who went on his first experience. But you said three things that keep stuck in my mind, and it was the breath, trust and love that's it and all three of those things are something that i've had to work on um especially the trusting part trusting myself specifically and loving myself and part of this experience on rhythmia they talk about um you know healing your heart and you talked about this with me earlier about the points of self-love so let's bring it back to like reflecting on this whole conversation and how maybe we can help somebody else who may be listening to it in the sense of like if somebody is, is going through their own journey like, how would you steer them in the right direction to kind of like, without saying, okay, yeah, go to Rhythmia, great. But I'm talking about more going internal, more understanding how you can truly trust yourself, how you can find that self-love and how you can tap into the breath. Like, where does somebody start? I am one of the people that believe that, believe that nobody can steer you in the right direction. There mm -hmm. are no answers for how people can walk through um, from karma to dharma in their own experience and expression. The only thing that I can say, or the only few things that I could say, when you feel like laying down and giving up, keep going. Yes. If you feel like crying, cry. 
If you are feeling, feel. When you love, love honestly. When you look in the mirror, make sure that you are seeing who you truly authentically are and never stop asking and seeking your authentic truth. It will lead to your life's purpose. It will lead to who you are and why you are on this planet as a spiritual being. Hold on to faith, however you define it, knowing that you are you are greater than you know because you're connected to everything that created everything and continues to evolve everything. Be honest with yourself. Trust your intuitive inner voice. Don't beat yourself up if you turn right when you think you should have turned left. And always remember there are no mistakes. Just lessons. You have never made a mistake. Whether it was addiction, bad marriage, I shouldn't have done this. That's the greatest lie. And once you release the lie that you could make a mistake while you are in a soul learning process, then you will be set free because that is the truth. And only the truth can set you free. Stay in the truth. If you have someone that you are in contention with, someone that is hurting or bothering you, that is a mirror to look into. What is it about that person that bothers me? You're seeing it in yourself. Then you have to send that love to yourself and then send it back to them. Do your very best when you're angry, enraged, or feeling unforgiving to stop and vibrate in love at a high frequency, no matter how long it takes. And always be aware of your thoughts because your thoughts are literally the strongest energy force that enter into your body, your bloodstream. Your thoughts create things. Your thoughts create every experience that you have in life. Be very conscientious of your thoughts. Shift them the moment something comes in negative. Shift it because you can believe. If you can believe it, you can be it. You can expand it. You can explore it. You can grow it whether that's good or bad. It is true that this too shall pass. That's not just the negative. That's also the positive. When you're on the highest high, this too shall pass. When yeah. you're in greatest love, this too shall pass. When you're in complete contentment, this too shall pass. And when you are in deep depression, this too shall pass. Because you go through life the same way the earth is expanding in seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall. Allow yourself to know the seasons of your journey. Open your heart to bear witness to it and trust it. In a winter season, it's cold, it's bare, and nothing's happening. Don't give up. Lay still because beneath the earth, there is a death happening, a germination of seed, which will bring birth to the spring. In the spring where everything is perfect and glorious and colorful and amazing, embrace it because it will be challenged by the heat and the fires of life. When trauma and things that are there to expand you come through, get through that summer so that the things that have to be burnt off in those fire seasons of trauma and drama, illness and release come through in the fall. Now you can let those things go and find out who you are in the awakening of the next season. That's really? what I would say. That's beautiful. I mean, there's so many like little lessons within that um, that little speech that you just uh, graced us with. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. Um, I think one of the things that really stood out for me is is like one, keep going, right? Don't don't allow yourself to stop, even as things get challenging and hard, or even if they're riding it high, just continuously keep going. I think that's an amazing lesson. 
and also the fact that this too shall pass. And it's so interesting to me that you even said that because that was one of my big lessons of coming out of arrhythmia. I went as far as going to get a tattoo of that phrase on my arm and we couldn't figure really? out. I'm not joking you. My arm is still shaving from it, but I never got it because they couldn't figure out where to put it. And they were trying so many different places and it just never, I don't know, it just never, it never worked out. So I left the tattoo parlor. I was like, maybe I'm going to pause on this. Well, but you went, understand it because you do breath work. I understood breath it. Like the wind, everything passes with the wind. But it was like when I was in one of my ceremonies and it was on the third, no, it was on the fourth night. And after the first three nights of going through my journeys and my experiences and facing my fears and facing all these things that showed up for me. And I was sitting on the last ceremony. I wasn't sitting, I was lying down. And there was moments when the energy in, in the, in the what do you call it again? The, Maloka. The Maloka. Maloka was so intense, right? It was when they were doing the first women, I think, circle. And the energy, and they were chanting, and I was just like lying there, and everyone was like, people were howling, people were just going off. It was like this, this really intense experience. And there I was lying there in this peaceful mindset. In my mind, I was telling myself two things this too shall pass, and my journey is my own. And Beautiful. Yes. And still to this day, like even this morning, I remember saying that to myself in the shower. Because you're right about the thoughts. These things were popping up in my mind. I was thinking about this person, this experience, and how I'm showing up. And I was like, pause for a sec. My journey is my own. My journey is my own. This too shall pass. And it brought this sense of calmness over me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's one thing to say these. It's another thing to embody these and really sure. understand the meaning behind them. And those were two of my, my, my lessons that I pulled out of my experience. So the fact that you brought it up, it just really hit home and it resonated. Well, so. the beauty of the Maluka with all that's going on, vomiting, screaming, all of this stuff when you think you're trying to find peace, is here's the reality. We shut ourselves off to the truth that no matter what you're experiencing in life, that's going on all around you at all times. Right now, you could be making love to your wife at the same time there are 30 people being slaughtered in Ukraine screaming. You could be you could be dancing with your child at the exact same time someone is fighting for their child to not die from cancer. Someone is being shot. Someone is ODing. Someone is selling their body. Life is happening all around. We have to, our souls have to have the ability to hold love and compassion for all of the experiences of humanity that are going on at the exact same time that we are in bliss or in peace. We're in tears when someone is in celebration, but always at all times, what's going on in that Maluka is happening. Our closed doors don't allow us to attend to it, but it is, it's always happening. So you have this very beautiful experience. This is what people need to learn. Find the peace amidst it all. Shut off the news. Shut off the news. These things that try to remind you because what's this doing? This stuff is never not going to be there. Oh, this one died and this one happened and he's doing this and all. And now you're suddenly walking around your house holding all of these experiences when you already know how to breathe and say this too shall pass. Your journey is your journey. Yes, it was It was such a transition from, from Tuesday night where um, I had to leave the Malaka and I ended up back in my room because I couldn't handle the energy. But on that night, I was able to take it all in. And instead of trying to hide from it, I was able to give back my positive energy. And I was sending people love and positive energy. I was like, yes, purge. Yes, Mo, like go through whatever you're going through and heal yourself 
because I was already in a place of love and of healing my heart. I was able to expand that out. It was such like a, it was such a profound moment. Like I'll, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget my experiences there. And um, I'm really grateful, like just for yeah. all that there, meeting yourself and now yeah. being able to share your story. Um, yeah. And so I think we'll come to the end. Uh, yeah. I know, again, you're such a way with words and you're, you're, you're so graceful, <laughs> like the way you present yourself and the way you share. But I'll leave it with this. And the premise of this whole podcast and this initiative is create a life you love. Yes. I'll ask you this. Do you feel like you're at a position now where you love your life? And I'm not saying it doesn't still come with challenges and I'm not saying it doesn't come with hurdles, but do you feel like you're at a place where you do truly love your life in a place now where you can, and I, I have an answer for that already. I love that. But I, I believe that if you truly understand the breadth and width of what it means to love, if God is love, then everything in your life, every experience has been a wind and breath of love. If you've learned to love self, to love all expressions of your journey, if you've learned to be grateful that you're still here while others have stopped breathing, then you recognize that your life is love. And just living is living a life that you love because how do you not love your life if you have breath in your lungs? If there's still opportunities to express, to grow, to create, to be, to remember. No, that's beautiful. Because it's not necessarily about, well, sometimes it is about doing the Love isn't just an emotion. Love is not an emotion. So this this question can lead people to go, but do I love that? Like I loved this experience and I didn't love that experience because we in society think that love is an emotion. Like I love pasta and I love my mate, but love is an, love is an entity. Love is the spirit. You know, um, Love is everything that holds this universe together and everything that created this universe. Right. So love can't be authorized or defined. If you have life, you have love because love has given you life. And if you have created life, you have love because love that is you is being expressed in the earth. If you laugh, you are love and you shared love forever. If you have children, they're literal pockets of your love running around. Love forever. and generations of your love and your grandparents and ancestors love is on the earth expressing itself as love your so life you know, is love getting yourself back to that position of awareness that love is and love is and not to diminish yourself because you went through this experience or diminish yourself because maybe you caused harm to somebody else it's more of acceptance right and more understanding that these are lessons that you have to go through get to where you are now and accepting that. Not even that you had to, but you did. You You went through that. In my therapy sessions, I have something called an empty chair. And what I would say to people when you're in the midst of the fire season, when you're in the dark place, when you're going through, we would sit an empty chair there and we would sit, I would sit a chair there and sit one of my clients facing that empty chair. First, you lean into that chair and you find the darkest experience that you're in in the moment. You could be losing everything, your home, your family, your health, and your money like Job. But you have to, you stop and you write down or you speak five things that you are grateful for, for that experience happening. Just five things. Why am I grateful for this for fourth stage cancer? 
Yes. You may go, what, what the, f-? but yeah, exactly. in, 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 in that you may have had the deepest conversation you've ever had with your child. You've ever had. You have to find what the where the gratitude is in every experience. There is something to be grateful for in every experience. Uh, that's like, and that's yes, that's what you have to. And when you have a when you have people that you have not reconciled with, you may have never forgiven, including self. Some of those could already be in the grave could already be gone or you're never going to see them again you still have to get that still hiding in your body temple and it will still resurrect somewhere in your life that's what the empty chair is for as you're finding gratitude find gratitude for what they did i had to find gratitude for my rapist i actually had to write a letter and say thank you for raping me had you not raped me i would not know how strong i am have you not raped me i would not know you know compassion for other victims. Had you not raped me, I would not have understood the sanctity of my, of my physical body. You know, I mean, I had to find reasons to thank my rapist in Mm. gratitude and say, thank you. Thank you for raping me because had you not raped me, I wouldn't have been in that, in that mental state to, to move to a mountaintop to hide. I met three of the greatest friends of my life. And from there, I wrote three of the greatest books I'd ever written. Thank you for raping me. Because wow. that, I now have this relationship, this journey, this new home, this yeah. that everything that's happened has led you to where you are. And if you are in a dark place or you have people you can't forgive, you speak to that empty chair as if they're there because energy goes nowhere. Oh my gosh. They have to be in front of you. You can conjure because we're all interconnected. You can yeah. call that X right in front of you and say, this is how you made me feel. And yet I accepted those feelings, but those feelings aren't mine. They were experienced. And I let you go. I release you. I forgive you as I forgive me. I'm grateful that we journeyed together. I'm grateful that you abused me. I'm grateful that you lied to me. I'm grateful that you had those affairs. I'm grateful that you were torturous. Because of that, look where I am now. Oh my gosh, that is, that's like so beautiful. Like the way, the way you speak it, it just makes it sound so, uh, without lack of another word, it makes it sound so easy. And obviously it's not easy. And this is a challenging thing to face. It's a process, but it's a very, it's a very profound process. And necessary. Everything you do has to guide you back to love. And yourself, right? Because all these things you're talking about. Just love, self-love, love of others, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, or as yourself. This is all you're here to do. Oh my gosh. If your frequency is changing, then you're changing the earth forever because what you think, believe, the emotions, if you rage out, even when you die, your rage stays in the universe forever. Oh, right. So it's forever. Also, it's also changing your ancestral timeline. Absolutely. By you making those changes, Everyone that's going to come after you is going to be a byproduct of what you've accomplished versus you're a byproduct of everything that's happened to you. Yes. It's your energy pocket. You know, when you're there fighting with someone or going, fuck that, or I hate this, or this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even when you leave, that yeah, yeah, yeah is traveling the earth. 
Right, you put it out there and that energy is well, Yeah, and now it's going to locate itself, right? Negative, positive, you have electrons, neutrons, and protons. Now it's got to find something to attach to because yeah. it's, that could be a, your neighbor, a child down the street. Your negative energy could have attached to that young man that almost had a hope and almost didn't commit suicide. But all of this collective conscious energy, now it's connecting to his and I can't do it anymore and boom. Now, what if we were sending all of this love frequency out in vibrations by the millions instead of that negativity? Then that and and that positive attached is negative because it was so much greater. Then, right as he's holding the gun to his head, he goes, "Wait, there's hope. I just I just need to cry. This too shall pass." Right. So being vulnerable is almost like being everyone's energy affects everyone else. It's a collective consciousness. So we could only be responsible for what we put out in the earth. Right. But being able to be vulnerable and cry when you need to reach out to that person when you need to and share when you need to is a catalyst for you to heal. Oh, yeah. So many, so many. You can, you can write, you can plant. If you can't talk to that person, then speak it into the universe to them. Exactly. Because again, it's, it. it's about your self-love, right? Don't it's about it. Mm, so Everyone good. has God particle. So why, if you pray to God, or, or can you not talk to, to Billy? Yes. All made, God made man and woman in his image, male and female made he, him, all of it. We're all in the image, the imagination, the concept, the love, the energy force, the divine of all things all creative energy, God. So it's funny how people will only pray to a divinity they believe in, but you won't stop and go, I need to reach that girl, Mary, who I hurt when I was 15. Right. I'm going to send love to her. I said horrible things when I was a, a bad, mean, mean girl teenager. You know, if that, I'm just giving an example that wasn't me, there was no Mary. <laughs> but, no, I know. But, I really, but, but you send those things, believe it or not, it affects that person. They'll, they'll, they'll get it because we have these kinds of cross wires. We're all connected. And right. they suddenly be in their car and suddenly think of you and go, wow, why did I get so upset? Like, right. they're doing. Amazing. Harper. Do it. Somebody I else. love you. Thank you so much for doing this. Let's leave it with this. Is there any way people can connect with you? Do you want to share anything as far as how to like reach you online? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, I, I always open my arms, my heart, my door. Um, and if someone needs to talk, I know that there are, there are times where you feel like I can't get through this. Uh, my email is piperEAG at Gmail, P-I-P-E-R-E-A-G at Gmail, especially if you're someone in need. My website is piperdellums.com. My website and my company is isloveretreats.com. And very soon we will have with my partner, David Fong, the Healing Hotels uh -huh, by Dreamer. So you will be able to come to myriad hotels all over the world in the next 15 years, starting now in England, Scotland, and the US. You will be able to come and have healing modalities, every possibility, not plant medicine, not, not in Europe, but every other form of healing, drama therapy, art therapy, dance therapy, indigenous art therapy, music, right. you name it. Right. Yeah. And um, don't forget to breathe. You have Jeremy there. <laughs> forget to breathe. So yes. mm -hmm. that's how you contact me through my email or visit one of my websites. I'll share all that stuff in the description. And if anyone, like Piper said, um, wants to reach out to her, it sounds like she's very open to that. Absolutely. And 
Yes. Okay. Thank you so much, Piper. It's been thank you so much, Jeremy. I wish you all the best and I send you love. Thank you. Bye, brother. <laughs>